Yeah, so definitely there's a huge amount of bodily insecurity and uh, some of them are kind of not so surprising. They've kind of leaked into popular culture. So I think it's well known that men can be insecure about the size of their penises, although the degree of it, you, you know, is still kind of striking on Google where I think I, I calculate that men ask more questions about their penis than any other body part. And they ask more questions how to make their penis bigger than how to tune a guitar or change a tie or make an omelet. Uh, and the top question, question concern they have about steroids is not uh, how they might affect their health, but whether it'll make pe- their penis smaller. Uh, so there's all these like, there's all these like, oh wow, <laughs> yeah. E- even if you realize that men are insecure about that, you might not have realized the degree to which. What is going on, my friends? Thank you so much for joining me on another episode of Cut the Crap Podcast, where every single week I'm condensing a book down to its core golden nuggets, bringing the author on the show, and we're having a conversation about the book, about the golden nuggets. I'm here to save you time. You might not have time to read the book, but if I can condense it down to its core golden nuggets and bring the author on, I feel like I'm giving you a solid piece of content that uh, hopefully you walk away and learn something from. And again, thank you so much to everybody who's been rating and reviewing the show. means a lot to me that you do. But hey, I'm trying to give you back a little something in return for rating and reviewing it. All I'm asking for is a review of the show on iTunes. And I know if you're listening online or if you're listening on Android, I haven't really made it easy for you to enter your entry in. I'll figure out a way to do that. But in the meantime, if you're listening on iPhone or if you're listening through iTunes, rate and review the show. Send me a screen capture of your review and I'll enter you into a draw moving forward every single quarter. It doesn't matter. You don't have to continually resubmit. You submit once and you're in forever. And every single quarter, I'm going to draw a name to win a prize. This quarter's prize is a MacBook Air. So if you don't have a MacBook Air, if you want one, if you don't want one, if you want to sell one, I don't care. I'm giving away a MacBook Air. So get your uh, reviews in. Send it to me by email. My email, by the way, is ryan.caligiri at me.com. If you forget that, just go to cutthecrappodcast.com and uh, just submit it to me uh, through the uh, through the form field there. And I uh, just really quickly want to thank everybody who reached out to me. You all saw, if you follow me on LinkedIn, I put a message out there on LinkedIn saying that I received some news about my dog, Roxy. For all you guys who've been listening, you know how much I love my, my girl, Roxy. And I put a little post out there on LinkedIn saying that she's going to need some surgery coming up. So um, I appreciate everybody reaching out to me, giving me those positive vibes and uh, asking questions and uh, just showing your concern. And to me, that means a whole hell of a lot. So thank you so much. And, uh, you know, I'm not really worried about the surgery. The surgery is going to go awesome. She's going to do well. And uh, she's going to rebound like a beast because that's what she is. She's my little beast. So um, anyways, thank you so much to everybody who did show concern. It means a lot to me. All right, so enough with the jibber-jabber. What are we talking about this week? This week, we have the book, Everybody Lies, Big Data, New Data, and What the Internet Can Tell Us About Who We Really Are by Seth Stevens Davidowitz. Very interesting book. Didn't really know what to expect from this one, got into it, and it kept me guessing the entire way through. This entire book, it's about Google searches and searching the internet's data and what it tells us about humanity. You know, there's so many different things that I found very interesting about this book that revealed to us a different perspective. You know, in my mind, I had an idea about what reality was, but after revealing the data that Seth Stevens Davidowitz finds through Google searches, through AdWords, we find a very different story. So I don't want to talk too much about it. We'll break right into the show, give it a listen, and I'll catch you back here at the very end. So enjoy it. This is Everybody Lies, Big Data, New Data, and what the internet can tell us about who we really are. Seth, thank you so much for joining us on Cut the Crap Podcast. Uh, it's a pleasure having you here, my friend. Thanks for having me. Why don't we crack into this one a little bit? But before we do, why don't you tell us a little bit about who you are, what you do, and why you created the book. And again, the book, Everybody Lies, Big Data, New Data, and What the Internet Can Tell Us About Who We Really Are. And it's funny, in the book, you talk about your title for it. I mean, the title that you were going to go with it originally was How Big Is My Penis and What Google Searches Can Tell Us About Human Nature. I mean, e- either one of those titles would have worked. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I, my publisher was skeptical about the 
how big is my penis because like people would be embarrassed to buy it and stuff. So <laughs> Dang, that's true. Never would have thought I don't about really that. Sent the right message about the book either, but uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I still kind of prefer that one. No kidding. So yeah, tell us a little bit about like, how did you come at, how did you come at this book? Why did you create it? And maybe tell us a little bit about yourself as well too. Give us a little bit of background. Yes. I was doing a PhD in economics in 2011 and uh, I somehow found, I don't remember who told me or where I saw it, this tool called Google Trends which allowed you to see uh, for various search terms. You could basically type in any search term and see how many, uh, how frequently people searched it in different places and over different time periods. And I kind of became obsessed with this data set. Uh, I, I, like, I think being in economics, I kind of had learned that a lot of the data sources that are considered uh, the gold standard and that people don't really ask questions about have major holes in them. So uh, I was really, so I, I kind of, was drawn for that reason probably to this data set. I've always been curious about people and maybe the secrets they hide and who they really are. And uh, I kind of suspected, uh, based on my own experience, or I talked to a lot of my friends about it, that people were very, very honest on Google and tell things to Google that they might not tell anyone else. Uh, so I basically just started doing research on this uh, and have continued doing research on it for five years. I worked at Google for a time period uh, as well, and I've written... Uh, newspaper columns about about my work and uh, now this book so uh, it's all kind of this obsession of mine that now I'm uh, hoping uh, will be of interest to other people as well I definitely think it's going to be of interest to people because to me it provided a different perspective on the truth there's so many interesting details that we just believe is the truth but as we see when people stop lying to themselves and when they get in front of that blank you know, search bar and they type in what they're, what they're thinking, what they want to do. It reveals something about human nature that it, it's counterintuitive. And some of the things that you share are quite surprising. We'll cover off some of those um, later on the podcast. But before we do, again, in classic Cut the Crap podcast fashion, we'll go through and we'll pull out some of the golden nuggets that I really want to really highlight about the book. So the first one that I really want to cover off here is that you talk about surveys and that surveys, they're just not as foolproof as we think they are. And I think that's interesting because a lot of our listeners right now, they're in sales positions, they're in marketing positions, and they use surveys quite a bit to generate a lot of information, a lot of intel. For the last, whatever, 80 years, that's what we did, right? When people wanted to know what people wanted, when we wanted to find out what people do or what they will do, we conduct a survey and we ask them. But the problem that you're saying is that people lie to surveys. They tell surveys what they think the surveyor wants them to say. So why is that the case? Uh, I think, well, there are a couple of reasons. One is that we lie to ourselves a lot. So if you're lying to yourself, if you forgot something you did uh, three months ago, you blocked it out of memory, uh, you can't tell that to someone else. Uh, so that's a bit, so that's one big problem. The other problem is that we lie. Uh, we just are in a habit, I think, of lying to other people about who we are. We tend to like other people to think we're more intellectual than, they are, than we are, maybe richer than we are. Uh, smarter than we are, uh, nicer than we are, and that behavior carries over. We're in a habit when we talk to someone, we tend to like to make ourselves look good. I think a big problem that surveys have, kind of a fundamental problem, is they don't give you an in any incentive to tell the truth. So even if you don't have an incentive to lie in an anonymous survey, you don't have an incentive to tell the truth. Uh, and in that case, I think people will uh, frequently uh, not tell the truth. That's interesting. So what can, what can, what kind of advice or what kind of thoughts do you have um, for people who do rely on surveys a lot? Like what are their options? Cause I'll tell you right now, there's a lot of marketers out there who maybe don't want to hear that. Well, <laughs> I, I don't think you have to throw out surveys completely for every uh, single question. There are places where surveys can be useful. I think they're probably a lot less reliable than people realize. Uh, <laughs> I mean, that's just my research is not even on things that, so a lot of the research in the book is, areas that are sensitive areas, so racism or sexuality, where, and here surveys are kind of useless because uh, people uh, don't, don't tell, like make, try to make themselves look good. But then sometimes even just look at survey questions, what are you going to buy a car in the future? And you, you see, like you correlate that with actually car sales and they don't correlate at all. That happens over and over again. So I think surveys are a lot uh, less reliable than, than people realize. And I think it's also important to note, too, that if you're doing a survey, there might be a difference. And I don't know, maybe there is, maybe there isn't. You can clarify this for us. But if you're actually doing a survey, maybe over the phone or in person, 
you might get skewed data as opposed to if you were to send it out over email and if they did it online. Would you get different responses? Would you perhaps get... Yeah, generally it's been thought that online uh, surveys are better. Although one problem now with these online surveys, they're so quick uh, that some people just like pick random answers really quickly and don't pay any attention. So yeah. uh, in kind of every survey has, has its issues. But it generally, for being more honest, people uh, have been shown to admit things they otherwise wouldn't online uh, more than offline. Mm-hmm. And I think that's maybe where I want to go next. So to me, really, the meat of the book, and I mean, these are kind of like softball things to kind of get us going into the episode. To me, we're kind of getting a little bit more in depth into what the book is about. And golden nugget number two, it's that people are more honest on Google than on any other sources, right? The data, it's anonymous, but by aggregating it, you can see patterns in behavior and people, they even use Google as almost like a journal where they're not even asking a question. They're just posing something and saying like, I love my girlfriend, for example. So why is it that people are so honest with Google and like, what's, what's the reason for that? So I think the first one is is back to incentives. So on a survey, there's no incentive to tell the truth. Your life is not going to be better if you tell a pollster uh, that you're gay or you're not going to vote or you have racist feelings. Uh, there's no reason for you to tell that to a survey. Uh, Google, you have an incentive. If you're gay, you have an incentive to search for gay porn. If you uh, are going to vote in an election, you have an incentive to look up how to vote, where to vote, polling places. Uh, if, if you're a racist, you have an incentive to maybe search for the latest racist jokes and get those, uh, get the, those newest jokes. So I think that's kind of the main reason that, that people are so honest on Google. But as you say, I think there are, there are these searches that people make, uh, that it's not clear why they're, they're making them what they're hoping to get from Google where people search, I love my girlfriend or I hate my husband or I hate my boss or I'm happy or I'm sad or I'm drunk. Uh, I think maybe... Uh, the habit of being honest on Google. People are so used to being honest on Google that they end up just using it as a confessional or a therapist where uh, there's, and they, they feel something uh, freeing about typing their thoughts into, into Google, even if there's no uh, <laughs> reason to expect that Google uh, would be able to help. That was so crazy to me when I read that. It just, it, it kind of blew me away because I didn't actually realize that people used Google in that, that way. Like, is that something new that just happened over the past like couple of years or is this something that's been going yeah, on I for a while? Increased recently. I think, again, it's probably because of the habit of, 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 uh, of being honest on Google. You know, you're searching porn and you're searching for, uh, you know, embarrassing health conditions. And the next thing you know, you're just talking to Google. Because, like, you know, <laughs> it's that friend who always hears you out on all, all your issues that you're not telling anybody else. And, and I think uh, one thing we know from the history of humanity, what, you know, the, the stories of confessionals or the popularity of therapy mm-hmm. in many areas is that uh, there is a, a, a lot of people do have a need to, for someone, or in this case, some box to hear them out, I guess. Yeah, it's interesting. And and the cool thing, too, that you talked about in the book was that with Google, it also, you know, it it understands us in that if you type in, for example, um, you know, uh, is my wife and you see what Google automatically puts in there for you and, and fills in, it tells you something a little bit about human nature and it tells us a little bit about, you know, what other people are searching and that by itself. So after I read the book, I started doing that. You know, I cleared my own, my own history, my own cookies, cause I didn't want it reading anything that I've done in the past, but I just started clicking in there, like how to, and then see what, what naturally comes up. How does Google do that? Does that just come from the amount of time somebody's searching something like give no, me some insight on that. Like, so that's based on the, the, the top searches people make, but it's a formula that gives a lot of uh, value to more recent searches. And the other thing about the form is for about the autocomplete is that they keep out dirty words. Mm. So that's, that's one of the reasons that some of my, my data, which is based on actual searches, uh, not just the autocomplete is a little bit different from the autocomplete because, uh, you know, they, they don't, yeah, they don't say, they don't like autocomplete. How big is my penis or things right. like that because they don't include them. They don't allow an autocomplete <laughs> penis. So, uh, well, yeah. that's one of the things now that we're going to break into. So those were the first two golden nuggets, and they're a little bit softer. So I just want to let anybody know if, if you know, you're listening to this in your car with your kids and things of that nature, you know, you might want to consider throwing on the earphones because uh, some of these things, you know, you might not feel comfortable with your kids listening to. But 
in your book, Seth, you talk about some really hard-hitting things, and I want to cover some of these things, and some things that might be a little bit uncomfortable and a little bit squeamish. And that's what I loved about it, because it just gave us a different side to human beings that, to me, I just didn't see it. And you provide such an insight that Google released, or that Google revealed for us. And that's what I think is the beauty and the magic of this book. And so for Golden Nugget number three, it's that we are all very insecure beings, you know, we're all, we're all so simple, simple human beings concerning ourselves with simple issues like how big is my penis or does my vagina stink or, you know, should I get breast implants or how to make my butt bigger? You know, thanks so much, Kim Kardashian, for that one. You know, so what have you learned by your research and why are we so fascinated with these things and what can we make of all this secret insecurity? Yeah, so definitely there's a huge amount of bodily insecurity and uh, some of them are kind of not so surprising. They've kind of leaked into popular culture. So I think it's well known that men can be insecure about the size of their penises, although the degree of it, you, you know, is still kind of striking on Google, where I think I, I calculate that men ask more questions about their penis than any other body part. And they ask more questions how to make their penis bigger than how to tune a guitar or change a tire, or make an omelet. Uh, and the top question, question concern they have about steroids is not uh, how they might affect their health, but whether it'll make pe- their penis smaller. Uh, so there's all these like there's all these like oh wow yeah even if you realize that men are insecure about that you might not have realized uh, the degree to which men are insecure but then there are things that are maybe a little bit more surprising uh you know i talk about female bodily insecurity and uh the obsession with vaginal odor which you know maybe you you might see some commercials on it it's not totally unknown this can be an insecurity but the degree to which that's an insecurity almost the extent that men are concerned about their penis size, I think what was definitely surprising to me. And that's actually something we can use that information for useful purposes. We can maybe talk, teachers may talk about that in sex ed. Now they know that this is something that many, many, many women are going to be concerned about to talk about what's normal and what isn't normal, what's a concern, uh, kind of can calm a a paranoia that is apparent among many, uh, particularly younger uh, women or young girls. And then, you know, I think in general, Female insecurity, female bodily insecurity is well known about weight and, uh, you know, breast implants and butts now are, are becoming just as big an issue uh, as, as breasts, apparently, you know, thanks to Kim Kardashian. But uh, I think one of the things that also is surprising is the degree to which men have bodily insecurity around some of these topics that, you know, if you look at around the web, how many men and women are visiting weight loss sites or plastic surgery sites. It's more women than men, but not that much more. It's about 40% male. And you see some areas uh, where the, this, you know, the, this insecurity is focused. A huge one is, is uh, man boobs or man breasts. Uh, the, you know, about 20% of searches about how to change one's breasts are from men looking how to get rid of man boobs. And that's something that you know, is, is a little, we're a little bit hush-hush about because I don't think a lot of men uh, like talking about this insecurity. But it clearly is uh, very widespread and can cause a lot of anxiety uh, for many men. Yeah, I found it very interesting when you started to uh, compare some of the things that men searched for with some of the things that women searched for. And it kind of revealed a little bit of a truth where you said, you know, for every 147, I don't remember the number exactly, you might have a better idea of the range, but for every 147 searches about penis size that men had, there was one search that women had. And so by by looking... 170. And also, like, women are about equally split between how to that complaining that a partner's penis is too, too big as too small. Although like you never see men searching Google how to make my penis smaller. <laughs> That's right. Not, I shouldn't say never. They're, one of the things about big data is really no matter what search it is, there's going to be somebody who makes that search. There are a couple of men uh, out there looking to make their penis smaller, but it's uh, very, very few. For sure. So what else did you learn from that essentially? Or, or what stories or, or what anecdotes can you share with the audience that, you know, it really comes down to the fact that us as human beings, we're all very insecure. And overall, like, what's your biggest takeaway from all the research that you've had? Any stories, any anecdotes you'd like to share? Yeah. Well, I think need. I think the the point of like if you compare the searches that men are making about their penises versus women are making about partners' penises, it's that there's a lot of needless insecurity, and that people are much more stuck in their own head uh, than than judgmental of other people. So uh, mm-hmm. I think one of the things that maybe can come out of this research is we can all be a little bit easier on ourselves where we're, we, uh, uh, because other people tend, you know, if, if you can kind of imagine that, uh, when you see another person, they're not judging you, they're judging themselves. So, 
uh, it makes sense to judge yourself less because other people aren't thinking about you nearly as much as you think they are. Yeah, no, it's very true. And I didn't, you know, it's funny. I guess you know, I kind of knew that already, but just to see how insecure we are about our appearance and about our smells or, you know, about the size of our penises, for example. But I mean, one of your things, you were talking about bigger butts, but you know, in 2015, women searched more about how to grow a bigger butt um, than they did in 2010, where I think the numbers tripled for over a span of like four or five years. Like, yeah. It's crazy, yeah. like how trends it's so change. Weird. Yeah, it's like it's like because you, you kind of do see if you if you go back to when the data started in 2004, there's this panic from all these women who think their butts are too big yeah. and how to make it smaller. And now in 2017, it's my butt's too small. How do I make it bigger? So <laughs> uh, it's, it's it's it's. I think that does also when you see that you're just like, oh god, can't, yeah, <laughs> can't we just appreciate our butts as exactly the size as they are? <laughs> But it's funny, though, because you get to see, I mean, I, I don't know, like, what are you using, by the way? Like, are you using Google Trends? Like, how are you, how are you getting access That's to this data? Google AdWords is another one, because okay. Google AdWords gives absolute search volumes, and they have lower privacy thresholds. So that sometimes is a more uh, useful tool. Mm, interesting. Yeah, because I think from a marketing perspective, if there's people out there listening right now, they might want to say, like, hey, Ryan, like, ask Seth, how do I have, how do I get access to this data? Is this something that only you could have because you worked at Google, or is this something that anybody can access? Oh, any, pretty much anybody can use it. You know, like, it's it's a little bit confusing at first, so I've been doing it for many years, and you kind of learn a little bit more about how to interpret the data. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, though, though I do talk about that a little in my book, but, uh, you know, it's definitely, uh, you know, if you, if, you, if you study it for enough times, uh, for long enough, I think you definitely will get big insights into it. Oh, definitely. Into whatever in whatever business you're in. One of the things I found is that basically any question, any topic you explore, there's going to be some insight in Google searches that's surprising because uh, just so many people use Google and they are so honest on it. And mm-hmm. uh, there's there's definitely something there that that you wouldn't have expected that can change how you think about the world. So the next golden nugget here is, and again, this one's this one's a little bit more uncomfortable as well too, but. It's that racist search data shows that we are perhaps more racist than we think. And, you know, like when I read the book, I, I originally when, – when you think about, you know, the United States and you think about, you know, racist states, um, you know, it's no offense to anybody. But it's just the general conceived idea is that the southern states are more racist, for example. But that's not true based on some of your data. So what did you find essentially by, by looking at Google searches to find out, you know, where perhaps – People in the United States are perhaps more racist than others. Yeah, so I use Google searches for the N word, which is, mm-hmm. uh, you know, like uh, which is mostly searches for jokes mocking African Americans. And uh, I, yeah, I would have thought this would be basically limited to, uh, or like almost exclusively concentrated in Southern states. If you think of the history of the United States, you would think Alabama, Louisiana, Mississippi, right. you know, the Civil War, North versus South. And definitely these are areas are among the highest, but right up there with them are upstate New York and industrial Michigan and western Pennsylvania and eastern Ohio. Uh, if you kind of put the map together, you, set, you see that the real divide in racism these days in the United States is not north versus south. It's more east versus west, where it's much higher east of the Mississippi than west of the Mississippi River. And then uh, I, when I was actually starting this research, it was uh, Barack Obama was president. We thought we lived in a post-racial society. And the surveys had asked Americans, did you care that Obama was black when you were deciding your vote? And, you know, of course, 98, 99 percent of Americans said, of course not. Like, how could you say that? I would never uh, care about someone's skin color and deciding their deciding my vote. But you see very, very clearly in, in this Google data, then parts of the country that are making the most racist searches, uh, far fewer people supported Obama compared to other similar or Democratic candidates who had run previous elections. So very, very strong and, and uh, a robust relationship between racism and not voting for a black man for president. And then this data kind of reappeared in the uh, in the Trump primary where he was saying some racially charged things. And people found that the single highest predictor of Trump's support in the Republican primary uh, was racist searches on Google. So it clearly helped uh, drive his his early support and, and carry him to victory. That's a big insight because it really, again, it's just something that challenged our 
perception in terms of what we thought, you know, were perhaps um, uh, certain states had more um, uh, racism ingrained in them. This insight by itself, it helped to take us down to another path where black people, there's a level of racism that people showed with their Google searches, looking up, you know, jokes with the N-word. And, uh, you know, we saw certain increases on this, for example, um, you know, when Barack Obama's uh, inauguration day came in, or you see spikes of this when uh, Martin Luther King Day comes on. You know, I didn't realize, you know, maybe how racist we were. Now, it's, it's also because it's a different type of racism. So in the social sciences in the last... 20 years, there's been an obsession with this idea of implicit racism. And it's basically that we all have subcon- maybe possibly subconscious uh, stereotypes among groups. Mm-hmm. And so we might associate African Americans with criminal activity or uh, with uh, lower levels of intelligence. And even well meaning white people uh, might make those associations subconsciously and kind of rapid fire decision making. Uh, but the racism that I'm talking about on Google is is not really like that. It's not necessarily well-meaning people with subconscious associations. It's really a much more vicious, conscious animus uh, that seems to be fairly widespread and predicts a lot of uh, negative outcomes for black people. Yeah. And, um, you know, it's interesting. You were mentioning in the book talking about when uh, negative search terms are found with regards to race. You know, it was... You know, why are black people so rude or or why are they so um, uh, stupid, for example, or Mexicans? Why are they so racist or why are they so stupid? Christians, why are they so crazy? Why are they so delusional? Why are they wrong? Um, and then we get into Muslims, for example. And, you know, why are Muslims and dangerous, terrorist, evil, bad, violent, like some very negative terms there. And in the book, you talk about, you know, this Islamophobia and you reference um, one of the um, very tragic mass shootings in San Bernardino, uh, California. Could you maybe talk to us a little bit about that and some of the insights you gleaned from that uh, scenario? Yeah, so basically uh, after the San Bernardino attack, uh, there was a huge rise in uh, Islamophobia maybe isn't even the right word because it's not necessarily a fear of Muslims. It's really an, a rage towards Muslims that right. you see on Google where people are making search, the top search about Muslims, like immediately after this attack was kill Muslims. And uh, they were searched for, I hate Muslims and Muslims are evil. And, you know, Muslims are terrorists and die Muslims. And, mm. uh, you know, like all these really, really nasty searches by kind of a fringe group of, let's say, you know, I, I call them maniacs, uh, but they're a fringe group that creates a lot of problems in society. These searches actually correlate with hate crimes against Muslims. So when more people are making searches like kill Muslims and I hate Muslims, they're going to be more uh, Muslims, uh, who, we can expect that more Muslims, Americans will be uh, victims of, of hate crimes. So a few days after the San Bernardino attack, uh, Barack Obama was kind of, I guess, uh, aware that there was a problem of uh, this uh, rage towards Muslims, and he decided to give a speech on the topic. Uh, it was a nationally televised speech. It got a lot of attention, and it was, I thought, a beautiful speech. Uh, it was kind of classic Obama uh, talking about the responsibility we have uh, to not judge people based on their uh, religion, to not appeal to to fear, to uh, uh, instead appeal to freedom, or our responsibility to not judge, our responsibility to love one another. And it got rave reviews from all the serious sources, from the New York Times and the LA Times and Newsweek, you know, great speech, great speech, uh, you know, talking about uh, how, how important, uh, talking about uh, appealing to our better na- angels and uh, you know, who we should be as a nation. And uh, so uh, I was actually doing research with Evan Soltas at Princeton, uh, and we were studying these nasty searches about Muslims, and we wanted to see, all right, what happened after uh, Obama's speech, during and after Obama's speech, and Google searches, because there are so many of them, you can break them down minute by minute, and we can actually see, okay, uh, after Obama starts giving this beautiful speech, uh, do, do fewer people, you know, do fewer people make these nasty searches that how much they hate Muslims and how evil Muslims are and how, how no, no Syrian refugees and all these, um, you know, horrible searches. And uh, you see that they not only didn't drop, they didn't stay the same, they shot up uh, during, after the speech that everything Obama said seemed to uh, basically be backfiring, uh, you know, in terms of its main purpose, calming an angry mob. And uh, that, so this is kind of, you know, maybe a dark conclusion, but then there was, uh, we saw something else in the data that uh, was maybe a little more optimistic, which was there was one line Obama gave near the end of the speech. He said, 
that we have to remember that Muslim Americans are friends and neighbors. They're our uh, sports heroes and they're the men, the men and women who will die for our country. And you see kind of literally within seconds of making this statement, uh, the top descriptor of Muslim on Google was no longer Muslim terrorists or Muslim extremists as it had been for many years. It was Muslim athletes followed by Muslim soldiers and people, you know, were seeing oh, Muhammad Ali is a Muslim and, mm-hmm. Uh, you know, Shaquille O'Neal's a Muslim, and mm-hmm. uh, these terms kept the top spot for uh, many days afterwards. And uh, what we suggested, uh, we wrote about this in the New York Times, we suggested that uh, this seemed to suggest that maybe there was a strategy that was less effective and a strategy that was more effective uh, in terms of calming rage, where uh, the less effective strategy is lecturing people, giving them information that they've been told a thousand times about uh, the, the, their responsibility. And a more effective strategy was provoking their curiosity, uh, giving them new information, changing uh, maybe the stereotypes they have about a group that's causing so much rage. And uh, I think it's not crazy when you write something up in the New York Times that powerful people see it and uh, possibly people in Obama's staff saw it because a few weeks later he gave another speech. Again, it was nationally televised. Again, it got a lot of attention. It was in a Baltimore mosque. And in this speech, he kind of stopped with, uh, lecturing people. It wasn't a sermon. There wasn't talk of responsibility. Uh, but instead, he doubled down on the curiosity strategy where he talked about how Muslim Americans built the skyscrapers of Chicago and how mm-hmm. Thomas Jefferson has a copy of the Quran in his, uh, had a copy of the Quran. And uh, you see after this speech, many of the, the negative searches about Muslim uh, uh, Muslims actually dropped. So it did seem much more effective compared to the first speech and does suggest, uh, you know, obviously, you, you don't, I don't want to say from two from an analysis of Google data, after two speeches, we, we can cure hatred in the world. Uh, but I do think that, uh, you know, it does suggest that we can use some of this data to turn something as seemingly chaotic as how to calm an angry mob into a real science. In that section of the book, you really clarified that. And it was it was new and it was fascinating to me because you sit down, you listen to his speech and you hear pundits on, you know, CNN or Fox or what have you, whatever station you're watching. And they say, you know what, he, great speech. You know, I think it did a, a really good job. And yet when you look at the search data, which is, you know, essentially your your truth serum, you're getting a lot of the truth, what people are believing. And, and you know, taking that first approach of that first speech didn't work at all. But taking yeah. the second approach, it was like, wow, look at what we can learn and look how we can improve with just a little bit of data. And that to me is beautiful. And it really goes to drive the message home that with better data, we can create better results and better outcomes. If you think about the people who make these searches, kill Muslims, I hate Muslims. Hmm. Uh, we don't really, they're not necessarily, uh, you know, they're, they're, they're a small group. So if you have a huge survey, they may not be uh, included in that survey and they're not going to necessarily, you know, come to uh, Princeton or Oxford or Harvard to do a lab experiment, to participate in a lab experiment. Uh, but because Google searches includes data from everybody, they're included in that data set as well. Definitely, definitely. In the next golden nugget, I want to talk a little bit about child abuse and abortion. And this, again, was was really hard hitting. And you shared a really good story with us that um, in the book that I'd like you to share here on the podcast as well. And, um, you know, you believe that especially in the United States, there's this do-it-yourself abortion crisis that isn't being picked up by traditional sources. And, you know, when it comes down to child abuse, there's beliefs that in 2007, 2008, when the Great Recession was coming on, and, you know, you believe that parents were under high levels of stress, we believed that, you know, there's going to see an increase in child abuse. But yet, what we heard in the media wasn't true. So, Tell us about some of these lies that were being fed and some of the truth that the data can reveal for us. Yeah, so with the abortion data, uh, I think the, uh, you know, usually to measure the effects of policy, we use data on official abortions. Uh, it's collected by the CDC. The Guttmacher Institute also collects data on abortions. Uh, but this doesn't include anybody who does an abortion on their own, which it might not be so safe. And... Uh, I was kind of shocked by how frequently Americans are making searches for how to do an abortion themselves. Uh, really, really disturbing searches, how to give you, how to cause a miscarriage, how to give yourself a miscarriage, vitamin C abortion, parsley abortion, even like really disturbingly coat hanger abortion. And these searches are almost perfectly correlated with uh, hostility towards abortion. They're much higher in places where it's harder to get a legal abortion. And they shot up in 2011 
uh, when the United States, many parts of the United States started to crack down on abortion. Mm -hmm. Uh, that of course, we don't really know that people go through with those self-induced abortions, but if you actually look in places where it's hard to get an abortion, there do seem to be missing pregnancies, uh, that there, there are, um, much fewer legal, you know, on the books abortions in these places. And that's not, uh, matched by an increase in live births necessarily by enough of an increase in live births. They're kind of pregnancies that seem to be disappearing in these places, uh, that probably that I think based on the evidence uh, is in large part due to self-induced abortions. And then the child abuse, uh, basically after the Great Recession, there was a concern during the Great Recession, you'd think that stress would cause uh, an increase of child abuse, but then you see actually in 2007, 2008, there was a, a, a significant substantial decrease in official cases of child abuse. And in fact, this decrease was actually largest in places uh, that were most affected by the recession, like Nevada and Florida and Arizona, uh, where many, many people are out of work and struggling. And uh, so that that was kind of the traditional, that was the official story of what happened during child abuse in the recession. I think it's not true because you actually can see on Google, many people, and these are obviously heart-rending searches, make searches like uh, my dad hit me or my mom beats me or something, you know, parents strangling me, really, really horrible, horrible searches uh, and tragic searches, and you see that by, by older kids, and you see that these searches uh, basically start going up as soon as the Great Recession hit after having declined for a while. Uh, and I, I look at some more evidence in the data that I think uh, completes the story that basically the child abuse was, was actually rising during the recession, but, but it became harder. But fewer and fewer people were reporting the cases because uh, there were fewer people to handle the cases, and many of the people who do report the cases were overworked or out of work. Uh, so, so that, so, so kind of there was the the real story was a lot worse than the official story. Yeah. And that to me was, um, it made me, made me question things. And I've, I've always been a little bit skeptical. I've always been a little bit skeptical of, yeah, this is going to make me sound a little funny, but you know, I've always been skeptical of the news and, and the data that we're given. And what this book really helped me understand was that we need more data in order to find the truth. And the fact that, you know, it was being reported that child abuse was down, when you actually looked at search terms and you saw that search terms rose and what was the correlation, like what was the meaning behind that? Um, you know, how should we interpret that? It told us, you know, that a completely different story. And that to me, I think is some of the beauty of being able to leverage some of this data is that, you know, what we believe to be true isn't always true. And especially in such serious cases like this where, you know, children are going to Google and they're sharing some of these, you know, deep, dark things with Google and, and, and trying to, I don't know what they're trying to even glean from that. But it's, it's a scary reality, man. Really scary. Or even just to go back to the abortion piece. I mean, in 2015, you said that there were 700,000 uh, self-induced abortion searches. Like, that's a lot of searches in the United States alone. Or 4,000 searches on coat hanger abortions. Like, it's terrifying. Like, the fact that Google is seeing all this data, I mean, it, it's, it is quite scary. It's definitely another window into things. And I do think sometimes the incentives are there for people to all pat each other on the back. So if we, if we think that crime dropped, for example... You know, mayors will be very will, will will be very happy with that data, and uh, yeah, you just, and, and you know, the, the, a lot of people in the city that maybe their housing prices will go up, so they'll go along with it, and uh, so the, there there can be kind of this incentive for everyone to get the numbers down and to pat each other on the back, uh, and sometimes different stuff is actually happening. Mm -hmm. One of the last golden nuggets that I really took from it that was um, really surprising was that parents treat their sons and daughters differently. And you were able to reveal some truths through Google as well, too. And that a lot of parents, they don't even realize this. Well, they have these subconscious prejudices that they have, but they maybe just don't even know it. But perhaps by knowing some of the data that you found, it could potentially change their behavior. You know, for example, like, are they paying enough attention to their daughter's report card or their daughter's intellectual interests? Um, maybe tell us a little bit about some of these uh, subconscious prejudices that parents have that uh, were revealed through Google? Yeah, so I just compared the searches that American parents make when they search something like my son or they search something like my daughter and seeing if they were the same. And you see that they aren't, that when parents uh, include certain, make searches about a son, they're more likely to use words like uh, gifted or genius is my son gifted is my son a, a genius much more likely to ask that question than is my daughter gifted or is my daughter a genius and 
when they ask questions about daughter, they're more likely to ask, is my daughter overweight or how to get my daughter to lose weight uh, than they are with sons. And exactly as you're saying, I think that's one where many, most parents, I would think, do, do not want to have those biases uh, and probably aren't aware that they might have those biases, but perhaps just by making that available to say, on average, whatever you think, uh, it seems that uh, American parents in pretty much all parts of the country show these biases, uh, you may need, need to think twice uh, and just be, be aware of it and try to pay more attention to the intellectual potential of your daughters. Well, yeah. You even, well, you go in there and you say, you know, for example, parents, they're uh, two and a half times um, more likely to ask if their son is gifted as opposed to girls. Um, parents are more likely to inquire about their sons than daughters. Uh, searches around girls, they're more about their appearance. You know, is my daughter overweight? Or how do I make my daughter lose weight? However, more boys are overweight than girls you found through search data. So that I find is also very interesting as well too. So it's just, you know, parents are more likely to use positive words about their sons than their daughters. Uh, well, for example, like they're more like, just even subtle things, they're more likely to ask, is my son happy? And they're more likely to ask, is my daughter depressed? So it's, it does seem like for whatever reason, they're more likely to, to use associate their sons with positive words and their daughters with negative words. So there are these these kind of substantial biases that are revealed in the search data. Yeah, how should we interpret that? I don't even know that it's the words that the parents use. I think they just need to be, it's just a question, are you, are you paying enough attention to positive things your daughter is doing, to intellectual things your daughter is doing? Uh, because my, my guess is that no matter who you are, no matter how much of a feminist you are, uh, you might have, you probably have, have these biases deeply ingrained in you. And you should try to fight them consciously. Yeah. And I, you know, it's interesting, all these different pieces of the book, and, and we really, we covered off a few of them. And these were the ones that really stood out for me. But within each example, you share a multitude of different data points that really helps to drive this point home. And as I listened the entire time throughout the book, I was shocked. I was surprised. I mean, I laughed a little bit because some of the things were just ridiculous that people would search online. But in the end, it comes down to it that Google itself, it provides the truth to us. When you look at the data that people are plugging into Google, it's amazing how our society has all flocked towards Google and feel so comfortable sitting in front of a computer and sharing some of our deepest, darkest uh, secrets um, with Google. Um, so that's one big takeaway. But the other one is just the power of data and how important data is. And, you know, for a guy like me where I'm, I'm, I'm perhaps more on the creative side and not so much on the data side. Um, this book really helped me to appreciate the power of data with, you know, certain examples where you were telling me about um, the, the horse racer, for example, where there was an individual who was uh, an expert at selecting horses. And, he, and, you know, people looked at things traditionally looked at where people look at these all the time. They lo looked at bloodline or, um, you know, they're the parents of the horses and, you know, the, the breed and what have you. But this one individual was really good at it. And so what did he do? He used data by looking at, you know, the, the heart, the left heart ventricle or the size of their spleen or, you know, the size of their nostrils, for example. And so he used all this data and found, you know, specific truths. And those stories, as you kept telling him throughout the book, it helped sell me on how important data is in our world today. And the more of it we have, the smarter we'll be. In the end, you know, that's kind of my takeaway from the book. But essentially, what are some things or, or, or what are the top takeaways that you want people to take away when they pick up your book, when they read it? What are the things you want them to take away from it? Uh, that there's kind of a revolution in our understanding of people caused by the Internet is a big one. That there are things that we just had no idea about that now we do know. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, also the power of data versus intuition that, uh, you know, our, our intuition con consistently fools us and tricks us. And by using data, we can correct against that. And then uh, that certain data sources, we have to pay attention. I think the the danger of data is that people just see a number and immediately uh, give it credibility. So if a survey comes back and says that 98% uh, of, of Americans didn't care that Obama is black when deciding whether to vote for him, because it has numbers behind it and has some fancy, you know, it's from Gallup or mm. Pew. Uh, people will say, oh, okay, that's, uh, that's, that, that, that's true. And then that's not necessarily true. So you have to be, so you don't just accept blindly accept any source of data. Great piece of advice. Before I, le I uh, let you go here, what are you working on these days? You working on any new research projects or anything you want to share? Uh, I'm, working on a I'm working on a second book proposal. So that's, that's kind of my main project right now. Right on, man. Right on. Well, when you get it out, I'll look forward to getting you back on the show, my friend. But that's so Seth Stevens-Davidovitz, and his book is Everybody Lies, Big Data, New Data, 
and what the internet can tell us about who we really are. Um, definitely get out there, pick up the book, give it a read. It's a fantastic book. Support uh, our friend Seth here and, um, and enjoy. But uh, Seth, thank you so much for coming on the show. Really appreciate the time, my friend. Thanks so much, Ryan. All right, there we have it. That's Everybody Lies, Big Data, New Data, and What the Internet Can Tell Us About Who We Really Are by Seth Stevens Davidowitz. This is a different type of book, different type of book. And my whole idea with this podcast is to bring you depth. I don't just want to sit in the pocket with sales, marketing, innovation, strategy books. I mean, that's not, it's not going to give you a whole bunch of depth as an individual. It's not going to bring you new information. And eventually, you're just going to get bored. You can only hear about so many sales, marketing tactics and strategies and yada, yada. I got to bring you different books. And so for me, Everybody Lies was one of those different types of books. It brings you different information, different insights, um, you know, different table topics that you can share with your friends or your colleagues around the water cooler, around the dinner table, just different information. And so that's what I'm trying to get at here. And so you'll see as the podcast evolves, I'm going to continue to bring different books to you. Yes, I'm going to continue to bring you business books, but at the same time, I'm going to try to bring a little bit more depth to you because I think we all need to be more well-rounded. We all need to get different information. We all need to hear from different authors and hear some different perspectives. And uh, this is the way that I can do it for you. And in that same vein, I'm going to save you a whole hell of a lot of time because I guarantee you probably don't have a lot of time to read and let alone read a book a week. So that's my job. That's what I'm here for. And I hope that I can make your life a little bit easier as well. Feel free to share this podcast as well. You know, rate and review the show as usual. Go on to iTunes, rate and review it. Send me the review, the screen capture of the review. Just email it to me, ryan.caligiri at me.com, and I'll enter you into the draw this quarter for the MacBook Air. And uh, if you wouldn't mind, again, just tell your friends, tell your family about the podcast. The more we grow the podcast, the better. So thank you so much to everybody for tuning in. Follow me along on LinkedIn, Facebook, Instagram. Give me a follow, and uh, you'll see updates from me throughout the week. All right, my friends, that's a wrap. So again, thank you so much for tuning in and I'll catch you back here next week when I have a brand new book, brand new golden nuggets and an interview with the author of that book. Until then, my friends, have a productive week, a great week, and I'll talk to you soon. Take care. The number one thing that's going to change your life, the only thing that will change your life, change your business, change your money, change your relationship, is you must raise your standard. Your life can be too big to allow yourself to play too small. The only thing that changes our life long term is when we raise our standards. It means that all of us in life have things we want. We don't get what we want, we get what we have to have. What you're looking for and what you're talking about and what you need is self-discipline. Now, self-discipline, as the very term implies, comes from the self, it comes from you. It comes from when you make a decision to be disciplined. When you make a decision to be better. When you make a decision to do more and to be more. Well, I think the one thing that discipline definitely does help you with is it it helps you get things done. And when you get things done, when you, you, you actually do things, you, 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 you have more success. Make some choices. With new choices, you're going to get new results. With new results, you're going to get transformation. When you're no longer willing to tolerate something, that's when your life changes. Develop the habits. You've got the brain power. You've got the energy. But develop the habits of success. We know that one of the things about high achievers is they all have goals. 
So literally, without goals, you're directionless. You will be used. See, people without goals get used by other people who have them. People that don't have goals work for people who do. But you know about Michael Phelps? What allowed him to be able to push beyond that moment is his rituals. Go study the guy. Most people who swim have these unbelievable workouts. He does two and three of those workout sessions a day. All the other swimmers in the beginning thought he was insane. You can overtrain, you can't do that. It's not physically possible. But he had a standard and the rituals to back it up. If it, if it was easy, everybody would, everybody would be doing it. There are always going to be ups and downs, but I think it's really how you really you know, get back on your horse and keep going forward. And I think the biggest thing that, that I've always said is never give up. And I've, I never have, and nobody ever should. If they want something bad enough, they'll get it. They have to work for it. Yeah, it's not going to be easy. But if you want it bad enough, they'll do whatever it takes to get there. If you look at great athletes, for example, it's not that they were naturally talented, whether it's a Kobe or a Michael Jordan or a Federer. It was the quality of their rituals. If you think you can make a difference, it requires commitment. The pro goes to work, and it doesn't matter if you're sick, doesn't matter if you have kids, it doesn't matter what you, you're a pro, and you go to work. And that, and that just, it puts it in your head that this is what I do. If you don't do the work steadily every day, like an athlete going to the gym and practicing, if you don't do the work, if you don't act on the ideas, if you don't integrate them, if you don't show some self-discipline, no idea will work unless you do the work. Everyone in the world has a list of things they think they should do. I should lose weight. I should work out. I should work harder. I should, I should, I should, I should. And then you know what? What changes people is when you should becomes a must. When suddenly the thing you said should happen has to happen. That's when human beings change. Unless you take some new action, unless you start thinking some new thoughts, unless you start having some new conversations, unless you have the guts to clean out some of the things that are not working and install some of the new rituals that will work, nothing will change. The road to success is through commitment and through the strength to drive through that commitment when it gets hard. And it is gonna get hard and you're gonna to wanna to quit sometimes, but it'll be colored by who you are and more who you want to be. You have only one life, so don't waste it.